Welcome to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It is such a pleasure to welcome to the show today Mark Lakeman from Portland, Oregon, city repairer, urban permaculture designer, placemaker, community design facilitator, urban designer and thought leader. He's the co-founder of a not-for-profit organisation called the City Repair Project. It's all about placemaking. And he's also the principal and founder of Communitecture, a cutting-edge design firm with sustainable building projects at many scales. 
So as well as being a permaculture designer, he's an architect, a landscape architecture, and a regenerative designer. He works on eco-village projects, co-housing projects, pro- projects in low-income communities, and he has been responsible through his organisation for well over 1,200 placemaking projects throughout the city of Portland and beyond. So I've heard of Mark's work for a long time now, but this is actually the first time that we'd met and spoken. And I have to say that after this conversation, I was so deeply inspired. And what Mark does is is deeply inspirational, truly radical, and ultimately transformative and healing. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Well, I'm just so thrilled to to welcome to the show today, Mark Lagman, uh, someone who I've been watching the work of for a long time. Those of you who know me, I've been involved in in um, city farms, community gardens, and and uh, community permaculture projects for a long time. And Mark is someone who's been weaving permaculture with landscape architecture, city planning, and um, calling it city repair work. And I'm just reading through your bio, Mark, and you were talking about how you've been involved in just well, well over a thousand city repair projects that are community driven. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll dive into that a bit further. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, like, how, how are things going up in your part of the world? There's so many cascading crises happening at the moment. And we're on the, on the verge of a, an election for you there. And, um, has the bushfires headed into your part of the world? How yeah, you- they've been rather close to our town, to oh. Portland. Yeah, a lot of things happening at once, and uh, at a certain point, you just kind of have had enough, except it keeps coming. Uh, I think everybody gets to kind of decide what their measure is before they just need to go take a break. Um, I was thinking I really need to take a break and rest for a while, but um, I had this little voice in my head that said, you know what, there's a lot of people depending on us and a lot of species that have had it a lot worse for a longer time. Um, so maybe this whole thing is just getting warmed up in terms of the challenge. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's important to be resilient in the face of it, but you did need to take breath. Sometimes you need to sleep in. Fortunately, I have a, th- a three and a half year old daughter who just, uh, she's like a, this, you know, embodiment of primordial forces and, just cracks through the clouds of my of anything that's going on that would bring me down just constantly lifting me up and inspiring me so yeah uh, i'm i'm really lucky to have have that happening in my life yeah yeah I, but yeah go ahead sorry i was gonna say kids have that that beautiful ability to bring us into the present moment and to to value the small and the local and the the things that we notice right in front of us. My my youngest is now seven. It's not quite the same as a as a three year old, but you know the the noticing is still there and and it's it's the prioritization too of and remembering why it is that we're we're doing this. Is part of your your work is really about not just city repair but planet repair. Um, and and so that that's kind of what I hear as being the the bigger picture of what you're doing with all of this work. I mean, just want to talk about a little bit 
what what motivates you to do this work and and how you came to describe your work as city repair and planet repair. Okay. Well, I have to say um, I've really come into uh, uh, a kind of a, a, a sort of state of joy um, in, in being a part of kind of stumbling into the permaculture movement. It has certainly given me more... Uh, coherence and uh, a language to sh you know share with others, um, and uh, obviously a set of tools, and ideas, and strategies, and principles to work with and, and be in common cause with others. Uh, so that's you know that that just really is incredibly helpful now. Um, but I, I I actually experienced permaculture before I knew what it was. Um, through just kind of um, a series of fortunate twists, uh, kind of horrible twists, but I, I made I, I have this knack of making the best out of things. So I had gone into this corporate career and uh, to design huge landscapes and buildings. Um, and you know I was indoctrinated into this culture of modernist design thinking that I would somehow make a difference by inspiring people through like sculptural spaces, you know, the sort of just the dogma of modernism really, um, but with one kind of useful particle, which was that design can change the world. Fortunately for me, about three years into that career, I had attained the leadership status because I am very artistic and can draw uh, readily and easily. And um, But there was this huge toxic waste cover-up and we happened to be working on the Bank of America building and, and the whole site was sitting on toxicity and the contractor of the building was joking during a meeting about paying off government inspectors, which in fact he had just done in front of my eyes in this, in this meeting. Um, and I wasn't much of an activist at all at the time. Uh, but I, I, I just, I went back to my desk after the meeting and I found I couldn't, I couldn't think I, something was just so profoundly, um, wrong about even continuing another day in this occupation. So I did this really glorious job of quitting that day. And uh, I made the most beautiful mess. I just, on the way out, I took about three hours to quit. And I was, I brought everyone to the conference room and I sat there affirming to them why they had gone into design school and what their hopes were as students. I just, you know, I, I basically said every, everything I knew was true about them as young people. And I said, this is still true for me, so I'm leaving. And I believe it can be true for you here. You have to re-examine yourselves and never, never permit yourself to be a part of this kind of thing again. Anyway, I didn't want to scold them. I just wanted to ch challenge them to, to step into their, their highest self. And um, that really worked out, I learned years later. But I walked away from all of it and just started to travel. And the further I went, the more interested I was in place-based indigenous communities. And uh, I found myself asking, what are people like? Because I was really sure I didn't know and I wasn't seeing it and I wasn't being it. I, was, I didn't understand that, you know, that I was living in a colonized landscape with proscribed patterns where the land had basically been turned into a giant, you know, the entire entirety of the United States is basically a giant real estate investment, um, you know, except where people actually affect where they are through 
some intention um, retroactively. Everything's laid out as a real estate development. I think a lot like Australia. Very much. Um, sort of, you know, huge framework cast across the land to appropriate violently the places of stories of Native people. So that's very much true here, but we don't see it. We don't think of it. We just kind of keep going and trying to survive. And, uh, but I ended, up, I ended up going to this um, rainforest culture, uh, a group of Mayans that had been persisting in isolation since the onset of the Spanish um, invasion of their land. 500 years ago. And uh, I managed to go there and get clearance to visit them. They're kind of a a protected group. And that's where I really got to see um, the most marvelous things about what people can be like. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a parallel to absolutely every aspect of our daily lives. The, The small things and the momentous things all had some parallel that was, um, so beautiful that it was painful to witness. Um, like how people make decisions on how they interact with their children, the fact that they're never away from their own lives and they're always richer at the end of the day in their relationships. Everything that they do during the day enhances their world as opposed to just going off to make money to pay for your space where you barely get to be during the day. Um, So I got to learn, I got to basically get more of a stereoscopic view by getting far away from the culture to a place as different as possible. with all of these incredible indicators um, that verified my basically my progressive faith um, that people, if given a choice and enough information, will make the right choices on each other's behalf and not just be selfish and self-consumed. So um, I was seeing permaculture, you know, and and I'm and I'm not just talking about planting perpetually in in you know thin rainforest soil as they do. They plant in this continuously regenerative fashion, um, and then they allow, allow things to go follow, fallow long before the soil is exhausted. I was seeing a full spectrum of this like set of values expressed in every department of their lives, um, including their relationship to animals and even insects. And I saw interactions that... Um, this was the thing that changed me absolutely. Um, it was basically an interaction between a man and uh, and other species um, in a very dancing and creative way. And I, I cannot, I, I could attempt to explain it, but I would not know what I was. I would not know the truth of it. Even now, twenty five years later, it just changed me forever to go like I want that. Epiphany, and I know I don't need money for it. I need a way of being and seeing. Um, anyway, uh, having those experiences made me come back into the colonial grid of America, well coached, like I was well coached to see the colonial grid and to have a strategy for intervening and, and finding leverage and pressure points where I could intervene in order to catalyze um, this convergence of community that would build itself. And uh, the main thing is to say, if the grid is designed to nullify and eliminate the entire, almost the entire spectrum of human commons, which is really the case, and then commodify the world that people live in so that they work, they toil their whole lives just to try to pay for their house, to instead not transpose the village patterns on top of the grid, 
but elicit them from within and have them grow up from within, especially at strategic leverage points, creative misbehavior, um, propelling all of it, then um, we'll see. I mean, and that's basically what we do in the work that I do all the time, just constantly eliciting the best of what is we know is inherently in people. Very healing. Healing for everyone involved, including myself. Yeah. Uh, There's just so much about what you just said then that I'd like to pick up and talk about, but what just in relation to what you just said at the end about the way that you're approaching design rather than layering another design on top and another design on top and trying to sort of fix it, that it's that it's it's a process of healing, which is completely different from what we get taught in landscape architecture school or architecture school. It's almost like, you know, like we'll take that bit out and we'll redesign it and plonk something else in there and, like you're saying, hope to inspire something, whereas the inspiration comes from the connection and the richness of the relationships and the texture that you're able to create and and not just be a consumer of a space that someone else has created for you, but to be part of the imagining of it and the unfolding of that and the and you know it's it's an it's a magical process. Now, you've been involved in um, like I was saying right at the start. Um, you you can kind of just maybe guess at twelve hundred or more of these sorts of points of activation in and around the city, um, which is Portland. How how do you actually activate those to to happen? Because it is it's a different way of going about things. So that's one question. The other is. How does the profession of architecture, planning and landscape architecture see this and support this? And is well, the third question is, is this infiltrating that and sh- changing and shifting how people are thinking within that and, and, and even being taught within the university professions around that? Um, I, I went through that school back in the 90s, late 80s, and it yeah. wasn't there then. I think I got told... Design with nature is passe. And I think it was at that point that I disengaged. <laughs> yeah. Got great questions. Um, well, I think I'll, I'll take the first one, the second one first. Um, so I'm a third generation uh, architect, planner, designer. And um, so there's a lot I kind of, was coached to know by my both of my parents who are architects and planners. And my mom is really this kind of, now she's a grandmother, but sort of an Indiana Jones um, kind of character that goes out studying the ruins of pre-colonial villages. So I'm really helped, you know, helped a lot by her. She's my great hero. Yeah. And my dad is kind of completely unstoppable, brash, um, uh, creative monster. Uh, he's the founder of our urban design division of of the Bureau of Planning in Portland. So all these like reasons that people come to Portland to see our great innovations actually. Uh, my bedtime stories were, my fa- were uh, how my father was fighting from within the system and fighting with all of these commercial interests and constantly risking our family livelihood. Um, and warning me, you know, we might end up in a tent this weekend again. Um, but he was so propelled by the joy and the meaning of the challenge and not, not just like some sort of swashbuckling pirate, but like he knew that our destiny depends upon um, our seizing our birthright and uh, like reclaiming our, our agency and therefore our destiny. Um, you know, there was, there were so many influences back in the sixties and seventies that were 
informing his his heart. But um, so I knew from there a lot about design culture. I had a critique of it um, going in. I mean, as I grew, so I knew that as we did these ins- as I did these insurgencies, uh, as I elicited them. Because I'm not trying to take credit for them, I was only like a spark or a catalyst. But I just, I just keep sparking and sparking and sparking and sparking, and that's kind of important. Um, there's roles I think that old growth play in um, a variety of different ecologies in the world that is just continuous and and it can't stop. Otherwise, the, the overall guild will fail or be compromised. So I had to, I knew I had to make a commitment and just continue to have a presence. A facilitative and supportive underseeing presence, never an overseeing directive presence. But I knew that the culture of architecture and planning would not understand and that it would react. Um, that it's very formalistic. And so it would have this immediately have a, a judgment and a critique based on what it was looking at. And it wouldn't be interested in the deeper story. And even, you know, even when people are engaged in participatory design, it's it's oftentimes out of some kind of sense of fairness, or it's so great and so nice to involve children. Um, and maybe they're informed by some public health guidance, like, um, you know, the more like people identify with their place, the more they'll interact and the healthier they'll be physically because they'll walk outside and be less afraid. There, there are those sorts of things. Um, so there's some, there's some sympathy in, in the design culture for, for participatory design, but um, I had attained from my parents and also from being a child of the 60s, uh, this notion that it was integral, like speaking, free speech was integral, civil rights were integral. You wouldn't have a just society. You couldn't have a sustainable or resilient society without that characterizing everything. And I think our whole city really understood that. I'm a child of this city and you know, if we have one shared religion, it's that, and it's woven into the Portland plan, actually, we will participate in all things. And it's actually an obligation of the city leadership and bureaucracy to um, to honor that and to facilitate our engagement. And we won't support them politically if they, if they don't. There's nothing, there's no sustainable political culture without, um, you know, broad support. So I knew that they would, that they would, um, initially be very judgmental. And so um, there's this kind of, you know, there's this book by, uh, I think, Suds Terkel, uh, Rules for Radicals, that polarization is a really uh, important tool to go into any kind of creative engagement, understanding the power of polarization. And so I knew polarizing the context would, um, well, just doing anything polarized. So I didn't necessarily want to polarize, but I knew that I would. So it'd be like, Okay, we're going to be making people mad. Um, let's continue to be kind. We don't know what the hell we're doing anyway, so there's no reason for us to be arrogant. Um, this is all an experiment. The world's in danger, and it's kind of like we're on the Titanic. If we don't fucking try something, we're all doomed anyway. You know. And in those seven years of travel, I'd gained so much insight. I mean, I literally had gone around just asking, do you have any idea what is wrong with my society and what is wrong with me? And people are, I mean, like... I'm down in the Navajo nation and I asked that question. People are like, holy shit, let's get some food and drink. This is going to be wonderful. A white man wants to know what we think. You know, so I got to listen. And it's kind of the same thing every time. Like, 
about the, the rise of empire and the destruction of villages and the consumption of the world and the disruption of cultures. And uh, Anyway, so I had a larger framework. I had actually attained, you know how you're kind of like, if you don't, if you're just wandering through the world with all these moving parts and you're always asking questions, you never really quite have enough guesses. You don't have a framework to start fitting the pieces like a puzzle. You know how you kind of work around the edges to make a frame. Um, I had finally obtained a frame um, by through all of these travels, and especially by visiting the Lock and Maya. Um, and I was so so well coached coming out of that context to um, see where I am and to understand a lot about its paradox. I was able to engage it creatively. But the design culture was you know, immediately disaffected, and that was okay. Uh, I was really enjoying the fact that we were dominating the press 19 times on TV the first year and just endless articles to this day. And all these architects are like, oh, but we're doing big, expensive things. Why aren't we getting in the news? You're, you're hogging all the news, and all you're doing are these little things. And, and I said, well, it turns out the big is small and small is big, actually. Um, you know, we're in a patriarchy, so everything doesn't make sense anyway. But So you think that your thing is important because it's big, and yet there's so few people engaged in the creative process. So that means your big thing is actually small. And I can engage a 100 or 1,000 people in a small thing because they all have an identity with it, and they help to create it through some active contribution. And we've used this small thing to have an impact on the life force. So the small is actually big, and the big is actually small. And um, they're like, what? what are you talking about? Anyway, we rock. I mean, we rock in the sense that we actually succeeded in mightily transforming the bureaucratic culture, the political leadership, and the professional culture of our town. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to claim credit for it, but we took a stand. We went to an edge. Um, we have invaded the neighborhoods where all those architects live. They've gotten involved in the projects. Some of them can't quite, quite handle that much participation. Um, but a whole lot of them have been able to step into it, you know, and it's good for their careers to make a lot of friends. So, yeah, we just led by doing, we knew they'd get mad. They'd be all formalistic. They'd criticize us in harsh ways and we wouldn't stop until finally they would start to get it. Um, that form is not the point that like form needs to result from um, a process of engagement and that engagement is in, is integral design. Design skills are integral to democracy itself. And we're broken without them being shared. Mm. So what I'm hearing is you that this just by, well, it's not adjust, it was a, but the process of disruption and the process of engagement and re- relationship and and just doing stuff has rippled out and, and changed what's happening at all different levels. And um, I'm yeah. kind of curious to hear just a couple of examples, maybe like, what does that look like? What does your city look like differently now? Like if someone was to walk into Portland, what would they see differently? Or is it just a more of a sense of what feels different? What kind of yeah. things are, um, are popping up around the city as in as a response to this? And how has it changed the way that people's uh, daily life in that city is is happening? Yeah. Well, I have answers for like pre-COVID and during COVID. Um, if you'd come before March, uh, you know, especially during the spring, you could literally count 
the number of trees and divide them by the people and find that you, there were more trees here than anywhere else you, you've been in North America. So you would see um, that people love to plant trees. There's an amazing canopy um, that uh, there are edibles where there shouldn't, where there aren't supposed to be, but now it's legal so that they are supposed to be. You could learn a bit about that story and find out like, wow, you can plant fruit and nut trees in the right of way. Um, because basically <laughs> we planted so many trees that were, you know, were, were dropping food on us that it was either that the city council would declare us all criminals or they would have to legalize it. Uh, and that, that's actually a strategy. Just everybody just keep doing it until it, it has to become legal. Um, yeah, you would, before COVID, you would see people, um, being outwardly joyful, um, demonstrative, you know, holding each other, kissing each other, holding hands, um, being playful, making jokes, riding absurd vehicles, bikes, um, doing absurd things, wearing costumes. Um, so characterizing a broader spectrum of emotional, you know, expression and, um, you know, less repression, uh, more inclusivity that's evident outward. Um, but there's statistics, you know, like, um, we have this gigantic naked bike ride. It's the biggest thing in the world. It frequently sets a world record. You've got like 25,000 people out riding bikes naked together through the night, which is really the best thing ever. Um, you might see that. And there's a lot of like unprogrammed, just naked bike rides. I, I'm, I'm kind of going to the edge of silliness here, but, but they're really meaningful to me. When people are being outward like that and they feel that they own public space enough to just, just do those things, um, it really helps to push a boundary of, 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 of normative patterns. But, more, you know, just as like no less significant are um, the sheer number of you know, green buildings, natural buildings, urban agriculture installations. The thing you would see most often, though, is that the street surfaces are recreated. Now, this isn't just, you know, you, you would see that like, people are taking intersections and, and they're basically, you know, the permaculture analysis is like, okay, well, if we want to be in accord with nature, we have to kind of sort of design like nature. It's a bit biomimic, mimicry oriented, but, um, you know, in a, in a mycelial network, for instance, the, the, the threads, when they cross and intersect, they become nodes. And it's a really key ecological design principle for the creation of networks that the intersection become nodes of interaction and convergence. And so that's really one of our foremost strategies that that's that eliciting of the village from within the grid, that the intersections stop being merely a traffic corridor where your only chance of meeting someone is to run into them in a car. Um, and instead you treat it like a village would. Now this is really urban design 101. It's the most basic principle that where our pathways converge, our lives come together. So that's the, you know, that's really the foremost principle in my opinion of village design placemaking so uh to transform those spot those those nullified crossroads into a place of convergence again we oftentimes just start with this quick action high impact like low cost high impact quick action kind of approach that um it you know what you're seeing is this huge graphic installation and uh you know, if you know anything about the story, then you're like, wow, this is evidence of a four block diameter um, organism, social organism, where because the 
the mandate by Department of Transportation is everybody within four blocks has to have a voice. Um, so what you're seeing is the evidence of their collaboration playing out in the commons, and you're you're inverting the idea that they're powerless, and 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 they're they're getting a taste of their agency through the implementation of public art. But of course, it's not the thing. It's the fact that they're engaged and they have potlucks and the children are there and the fathers are learning how to listen and, and the, the moms are, you know, help kind of tricking the fathers into being helpful. And then um, and then it all plays out in this incredible epiphany that happens so fast, it's unbelievable. It's like half a day and the entire surface is embellished with this huge, um, you know, emblem of them, of their, of their vision. It's a symbol of themselves. And then they party through the night and they share all this food. And then, and this is the thing, but you're, you're tricking everyone into realizing that they are surrounded by thousands of people with the skills and talents that power the entire society. And you're kind of rolling back the isolation enough for them to see that they were never alone the whole time and that they're surrounded by all the muscle and talent and the power that they could possibly need to change the world. And that this public art installation is the beginning of it. And then, you know, following that, we start putting things on the corners, you know, solar-powered tea stations, community benches, little pavilions. But then, of course, yards come up and become gardens. Fences come down and become pathways. And, um, you know, you're really trying to revillage the blocks of the grid. And, uh, you know, as opposed to fleeing the city to go away, you strategically take your stand. Because within the, the colonial city-state, Really, the city is envisioned as an administrative center for the extraction of people and species and landscape. So instead, you you stand your ground within it and you transform it from within. Because um, otherwise, if you just run from it and start a new thing, it will come to you and it will destroy you. So you try to transform it from within. That's our whole. That's what we mean by city repair. It's like we're going to adapt and retrofit what exists. And I love the way that it's it's about reclaiming the urban commons and doing it in a way that's about shifting perception it's, it, and it's about um, activating a, a sense of, 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 of the community that is, that is there. Uh, you know, it's not about even starting, okay, we're going to start a city farm. It's starting with something so much simpler. That's like way down the track somewhere. And so these points of activation, um, are they – is this a is this a common pattern that you see that 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 it's really about um, some public art or like what are the other ways that you've seen that have activated people transforming their own local area? Yeah, well, there's many different forms that these things take, and frankly, uh, while I really love working out in the public right of way because I think that is the most um, it's been a high profile space. You might have a few permaculturists organizing a community, but then thousands of people literally interact with it, even if they're only passing it and seeing what's been created. Uh, so, yeah, it takes many different forms. And really key to, I, I just want to step back and say at the beginning, I really wasn't interested in doing anything that couldn't be replicated. I wanted to do something that was systemic in its impact. And uh, I think that was just really well coached so that when I came back, I, I um, had to do things with my hands and I had to involve kids. 
And I wanted to unmake my own arrogance through just this applied um, form of activism. Um, but it was worthless to do it as a one-off. And I knew I couldn't go around the world myself doing all this stuff. So it had to be something that would tap in. It had to be something that everybody already wanted to do. So that was kind of the trick. Like, what does everybody want to do? Well, they want to do what they want to do. So how do we sort of trick everybody into realizing how much fun it is to do what they want? <laughs> so uh, that's one thing to say. So what it looks like is what everybody wants to do. Um, but in order to make it easy, we had to change the law. So we have these ordinances now in the, in the city that allow every neighborhood, there's 95 of them, to transform as many street intersections into public squares as people want to do for free. All within as short a time as two weeks. And the, the stipulation is that they have to, they have to, it has to be their design. Damn it, you have to, it has to be your design. You have to fund it yourselves. You have to implement it yourselves. And you must involve your kids. Damn it. Um, so those are the stipulations from our, we used to call them the Department of Transportation, but now they're the, really the Department of Transformation of Public Space. And they're helping all these other cities to do it. So I have to tell you, like, as a child of a bureaucrat, I was taught by my dad, like, everybody's really unhappy. They hate their jobs. It's a total dirge. They want to use their creative uh, discretion. They want to be more creative. And so um, getting into this work, I, I had this insight that the people inside of the system wanted to be more human. So this, this had to be a strategic approach. Like, how can we also help them realize how much more fulfilling and meaningful their lives can be to support this work? So there were a lot of layers. I'm talking about this in permaculture terms. Like we were gathering all the like the objectives that we wanted to stack. What are the outcomes that we want of this systemic form of, of creative insurrection? Well, we want to, you know, activate the disen disengaged community. We want to transform public space as a political statement so that people go from thinking they're powerless to realizing that they're powerful. We want to transform the political leadership and the bureaucratic culture, and we want it to replicate madly. Um, so we had to change the law. So now you can transform as many street intersections as you want. You can transform the streets that connect the intersections. So all 6,000 miles of the right-of-way in the residential zone is, is available. And you know, before you even do that, the commercial zones are already being transformed. But it looks like things like like now it's legal to, to install um, community composting facilities in the street anywhere. You can just do it and you're automatically permitted and insured and you don't even have to register with the city. Like that's how progressive it's gotten. And um, so it looks like composting facilities, interactive kiosks of all kinds, um, you know, various different kinds of sculptural benches, you know, and when these are all handmade as they are, um, they're all very unique. They have their own kind of metaphors in them. They're all telling stories. Uh, some of them are little buildings, you know, so I'm just talking about the pieces out in public space and I'm talking about food forests, obviously, and, uh, you know, information dispensers. Some of these things are solar powered. Um, and then, you know, the, the effect though, it, it goes into private space as well. So you have people coming up to the edge and then inviting people over the edge in some really fabulous facilities. Like there's this one favorite place of mine inspired by the dream of a little girl. And it looks like a giant wave um, 
it's cobbed with, uh, with lime plaster over it. And there's this huggable mermaid, the little girl wanted to have a big sister and she needed to be able to hug her. So the, the, the cobbers made it so she could reach her arm around and hug her sister. And, um, so her sister's kind of leaning back like this and looking at the sky. And then there are these luminous, um, translucent roofs kind of arching over the whole thing. And then there's this lighthouse coming up through the roof, um, shining in the night. And that's where someone gave up their front yard to create this, this, this prototype, but also like his name was, I know I'm familiar, very familiar with this story. And he had just gotten done reading an article about a few different connecting threads. Um, he was like, Oh my God, my neighborhood doesn't have a single gathering place. So I live in a fucking development. Of course. Um, yeah. And part of the article observed, yeah, well, no wonder because it's pretty much just men between 35 and 85 that are dictating the patterns that you inhabit. So of course it's no fun because they don't know how to hug each other or tell their wives they love them. I know enough about the article. He went on about it to me. Um, so he was motivated to just walk right across the street and ask a seven-year-old girl, what would you do if you could just remake my whole yard? And she said, well, I would have, it would look like the ocean. And he's like, well, what else? And he's like, well, she might have a big sister. She'd be a mermaid. Anyway, he, be, he took on this cause. Uh, he's like, okay, well, then if, if a seven-year-old girl's vision would make the world a better place and I need to just support that, then that's what I'm going to do. And so that's one of my favorite spots to visit in Portland. But the commercial buildings have taken on uh, radical, wild, exuberant expressions. Um, we've got, you know, natural building and permaculture. And that's my favorite stuff. I mean, frankly, there's just lots of really interesting green building happening. And the gathering place effect is like in all cultures, you know, how corporate cultures try to get people to be healthier in order to have more retention in their business. That's happening. Um, City Hall's got food gardens all around it. Uh, there's just this is really evidence everywhere of the principles of placemaking being a way of expressing how you want to embed your vision for a better world in your immediate environment. And to me, placemaking is the I was try physical that. social armature of urban permaculture so that all the things we want to do in permaculture find a structure and a coherence for for people so that their pathways and spaces are how you can have a skeleton that everything kind of supports. Mm. So that's what you see. That um, it's, It sounds absolutely amazing. And I, one day I would love to come and visit when, <laughs> when the world opens up again to experience that because it's some, it's, it's a description of a city that you don't typically hear. And, uh, the, the kind of uh, limits that I hear often when I talk to people in and around the cities in Australia is like, well, this is our vision, but we can't because of the, the legal limitations and there's this, this kind of squashing of that. So it's a very pragmatic question, but how did you crack open that possibility for those new laws or bylaws to be there that enabled that to happen? And and maybe you answered that already by saying you just went out and did it and the laws just kind of had to follow. But was it as simple as that or is there something else that you were able to do to help shift that? And have you seen the same pattern following in other cities that these legal changes have 
have changed maybe before that process. I mean, you're kind of pioneering it where you are and, and things have followed, but when it gets replicated in other cities, what's what's the process of, I don't know, is there a fast-tracking process of doing this or is it always this bubbling up? Yeah. Well, it doesn't always have to begin the same way. I think once something is prototyped and it becomes a story uh, and enough people are exposed to it, then it becomes more possible. And it, and it just happens that, you know, we have political leaders that are extolling this and we have, um, it started with a few political leaders and now it's, you know, the state, the county, the city. But we also have some, you know, we have some opposition too. But small rural towns are like, oh no, we're not having that. And I'm just, okay, well, we'll see. Now that you've said it, the t- the clock is ticking. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's replicated. I mean, you know, it was it was so strategic, and a lot of it. I mean, I, I, I keep thinking that so much of it was conscious, but I know that a lot of it was also intuitive. Uh, I couldn't have put it in the same words then as I do now, but you know, to really understand the patterns of empire and 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 its and some of its core strategies is so helpful to try to unmake it, to try to you know inspire people to act where they are within that same kind of gigantic structure. So here's one, here's one thing, and I'm not sure how conscious it was, but we certainly have learned it since, Um, you know, empire tries to homogenize people in order to control them, whether it's through land development or through um, institutional religion, try to get everyone to kind of have a common set of standards. And it enables, um, you know, obviously it enables political structures to be mobile and to be kind of pervasive and uh, commercial activities because, you know, you have the same rules and engagement for how things are commodified. So that's all true. But it also means that anytime you create an exception, it's of interest to everyone and it's applicable to everyone wherever they are. As soon as there's an exception in the circumstance where people are being homogenized, they can relate to the story because the same problems are being solved in that place as you're experiencing where you are. Everyone feels isolated. Everyone feels disempowered. They're all told they're powerless. You know, only the, the elected politicians that are funded by corporations have a voice in the power. And then we're all just feeling shut out by that. Um, so, you know, we're working a lot of different ways. I mean, one, one egg in the basket is that you try to, um, you know, try you enact um, ordinances and policies, but you do it. You, this is one key part of the answer to your question. They are always aimed at goals and benchmarks that have been identified in every municipality as something that people consider a, a goal worth achieving. So, you know, slowing traffic is one. Um, certainly people are interested in keeping their property values. Um, and so beautification or livability or sustainability more recently. Um, those are other kind of related goals. So when your initiative is, is addressing those things, like say to address the crisis of, of houselessness or affordability, um, like you're basically, what, what we, we coach people to do this. We say, all right, just name the goals you're going to address and notify everybody, including the political leadership, you're addressing those goals. They're all going to say, well, yeah. Okay. So get, getting them to say yes, 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 yes. And then when you come back to them with a proposal, you're still not showing them a specific form. You're saying, 
this is how we want to engage you. This is how we're going to partner with these, these local schools. Um, we're going to work with the bureaucracies that are going to give us free permits. You know, whatever your plan is, and you still haven't got a form. So you don't lead with a form because they might go, ah, no. So you, you lead with something that they can say yes to. You start with wherever they're able to get starting, start to say yes. And then you get to the next yes and the next yes until the process begins. And then it unfolds in a way that they understand and is supportable and, and actually really they can identify with. So that's how it happens every time. And, uh, you know, I think our design culture, um, our civic engagement culture, uh, pretty much every department of our city is understanding, you know, not everybody, but key people everywhere um, are understanding what we're working on. And then they're just taking these principles and, the, and bringing them into their own spheres. And that's really important. It's just like permaculture. You know, how can these, how can these um, principles be of application in all these different circumstances? So that's what we've been after. Like, how can people take these things and make them their own in their own circumstance? Yeah, that makes so much sense. And and I just while you were speaking too, it's a little bit of a tangent, but you you mentioned about the the city food forest. Can you just tell us a little bit about what what that is and and how maybe there's more than one and how that how they are catalyzed to, you know, create these edible foodscapes that are public parks, I understand. Yeah. Well, I'm immediately thinking of Seattle because they actually have way more urban orchards and a really huge food forest. And uh, we don't have as many of them for some reason. Um, but so one way that we get these things to happen uh, requires a little story. Um, so we have, but first I'll say we have this huge barn raising ritual that happens in the city. And when I say ritual, I just mean it's annual. It brings people together. They look forward to it. It has all this meaning. And, um, yeah, there's ritualistic aspects to it that are more overt where people are, you know, intentional and celebratory and kind of grateful. Um, but we've had layers of realization in order to get to this giant barn raising. And this barn raising is part of how these things happen. I'm trying to answer your question by talking about this barn raising. Um, the barn raising is one way that these installations happen. It's one of the main ways because we put out a request for proposals all over the city, which travels all over our networks. And it basically says, who wants to change the world? What's your idea? Um, here's a bunch of things that people have done in the past. Frankly, everything's possible. Let us know what you want to do because we are nerds. We love people and we love to support. Like our, our, our we don't want to say it quite this way, but it's like our form of activism is to help other people do what they want, um, which is extremely growthful work. So we put it out there that people can do anything they want, and we'll find the support. We'll find them the materials, and we'll help them with money, and we'll get them free permits. We'll hold their hands, we'll train them, we'll teach them whatever they need, and uh, we'll find them all the volunteers and help you know help in every way that we can, so they can't fail. And uh, so we receive all of these proposals. Um, we release the RFP in September, October, and then proposals come back in mid-January. So strategically located in time, so that when people are gathering 
with all these social gatherings in the winter, late fall and winter, they have lots to talk about with their community. And then proposals come in in January. So really trying to be a, have it be a form of like time activism aligned with seasonal um, activities. And then we basically meet and design and train and fundraise with like three and a half, four dozen communities all working together, listening to each other and inspiring each other and representatives all coming to these meetings and trade, trading tools and helping each other. And so really the interventions are all over the city, but then we're, there's generations of networks where people have all done things together so that it all happens forward in a wave. So sometimes it's, you know, small things like kiosks or benches, and sometimes it's more elaborate, like, you know, entire landscapes of edible or, you know, species supporting installations, um, sometimes whole buildings, uh, outdoor kitchens, um, sort of large substantial things in institutional or commercial settings or is exhibitions or dialogues. It can really take any form. But I want to say, uh, you know, when we first got going, we were saying, all right, we noticed that the entire program of community commons is missing. So we need to have those commons bring people together. The next level that led us toward the barn raising was to say, oh my gosh, of course, with that place, you don't have the stewardship culture that resides there and takes care of the space. So naturally, therefore, you wouldn't have mentorship happening intergenerationally, um, interfamilial, in an interfamilial way. Um, and therefore, you wouldn't have ownership of place. And then as we set about changing physical infrastructure as a means to bring people together and build community, then we saw ourselves doing stuff annually and cyclically. And then we're like, oh my God, we've actually, we've remembered the barn raising is missing and it's coming out of us through our choices. So now we've noticed that the ritual, the rituals in time have been missing the whole time. And at this point, it's terrifying because we're like, we are so colonized that we're like rebirthing stuff that is so ancient that our, our evolution depended upon doing. And it's been missing this whole time. Of course we have, you know, the most epidemic levels of crime and violence in this country, you know, and of, of course we have homeless people as a direct consequence of nefarious design. Um, yeah. And then of course, then we're noticing all of these other things related to, to these, you know, one realization after another that uh, just keep coming about the consequences of, of, of all of this. So, like, as a, as a pattern of change-making, it's not doing the change. It's creating the conditions where change can take place is what it feels like what you're saying you're doing. And, and just as you were speaking then too, a sense that all of that, all that time that you spent listening in Indigenous communities is now manifesting. It almost sounds like you, you're, as a, as a, as a, as a community or as a city almost becoming Indigenous in that place, the way that this is unfolding. And I wonder whether you've been given any um, feedback from any of the Indigenous communities that you visited and talked with or local Indigenous communities about how they see what's happening now. Great question. Well, I'd say that I should probably give some attribution here, first of all. Um, 
but yeah, there's, there's various le- levels of feedback. And I think some of the current dynamics that are, have been so, um, the conditions here have been so exacerbated by the rising fascist culture that, uh, kind of hopeful, you know, allyship, um, has been really shaken, um, by very intentional polarization, um, and it's it's really hurt a lot of relationships and broken confidence. So I'm not really not really knowing exactly how to to talk about um, the relationships. I mean, I feel that the ones that I have with the people that have influenced me remain strong. I think I'm I'm basically the project of a variety of different people who took the time to share stories with me and and give me advice and even some foresight. Uh, and I think that they're trusting me to follow my heart and stuff, but, um, you know, it's a messy context right now. I want to say that, uh, just getting out of the USA and visiting any culture at all, which actually for me started with New Zealand. So not too different. I mean, you know, different substantially, but at the same time, kind of a safe place to start. Um, but just getting out and visiting a culture that kind of has its own values in different scales and contexts uh, is just a great way to begin. Um, and, you know, then naturally, I'm, I mean, kind of pretty, pretty naturally the way it tends to happen for an American. I'm visiting Western Europe and Eastern Europe and North Africa and the cultures there and kind of having my arrogance, and, you know, individuated character challenged in helpful ways. Um, but then getting really interested in, uh, pre-colonial cultures that persist in, uh, Central America and also in the USA and in Mexico. Um, so visiting different people and and going there intentionally and spending time or just kind of floating into them and, uh, and finding myself there and then taking the time. But in particular, um, in the Southwest, uh, Navajo and Apache and, just over the mountain from Portland, um, the Warm Springs tribe, and uh, most of all the Lakendon Maya. But I mean, you know, sometimes the interaction doesn't even have to be there very long. Like I was in Egypt during Ramadan, and just being invited by people who are just absolutely impoverished and don't even have a place to sleep to sit down and share beans in the street, um, you know, is a life changing experience. So they don't have to be elaborate immersions in order for you to gain um, an alternative perspective or to unmake some of your supremacist, you know, acculturation. Uh, I don't know if I've answered your question. Oh, no, that's so. What I what I what I just picked up in in that response because one of my future questions, or probably one of the questions to, to wrap up this conversation, is looking at what you suggest that people can do to start to step into this space more. And part of that sounds like actually stepping out of where you are <clears throat> right now to get a, a different perspective so that you can kind of come back in and look at it differently is one, one way of doing that. Uh, you know, the kinds of things that you were talking about all throughout the conversation is shifting the way that that we do things, that they are more from an Indigenous perspective because, you know, the way that you listen, the way that you communicate, the way that it's it's through story and through ritual and through responding to um, to what the group is 
is asking for or imagining. And all of these things are a completely um, different perspective than what we are used to in in a in a city environment. And and it is an indigenous approach. And it's so informed by all of those experiences that you've had and and then sharing that. So, you know, as as it's as we are now in COVID, it's kind of a little bit hard to to go out and spend time in in Africa or go and spend time in you know in, in uh, the Himalayas, which is kind of this place where I I had a similar kind of experience, I think, to what you were describing earlier. So how how do we stop and listen and and connect and get different perspectives when we you know for for example Melbourne um, has been for months on end at five kilometer radius of not being able to travel they just have to stay in place. And so this idea of placemaking in the way that you're describing it, I think right now where so many cities are seems to be the thing that can emerge to be part of the healing and uh, and the opportunity of transformation. But ha- how to get that shift of perception or maybe the perception shift because of the experience that we're having right now as well. What's your perception on 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 those on where we are now, particularly in this COVID time, and helping to get those perception shifts. Thanks. Well, I think um, the next move has to be ours. Otherwise, it won't be our move. Um, I don't know how you feel about your government, but um, I know that ours intends us no no, no good, and. Uh, we're all very vulnerable right now. Um, I think that there are so many different ways to answer that question. And I'm saying that because I've seen so many different strategies for beginning. Um, I think people can stop themselves by feeling like they have to have everything figured out first. Um, they can stop themselves if they feel like they don't have enough help. Uh, and fortunately, permaculture would have us just start and um, make make mistakes. And, uh, you know, you're, you're guided by being asked to do things that bring you fruitfulness pretty, pretty much right away and uh, apply the energy you have proportionally so that you, um, you know, don't exhaust yourself. And you can sort of test, test, test how it went. Um, so that's good guidance. Uh, but I think, like to me, our greatest weapon, sort of not weapons, weapons, weapons of mass construction are to um, employ beauty and music. Like what are the things that we love to bring people together around? And we still have those. Right now, people can't really get together. So how can you, what can you do? I think you can always be cultivating how you relate to the larger scales of self. So this is really a spiritual exercise, but I think it's very, um, it's very, it's very true. It's very fact-based. How am I part of a larger organism? And, um, and then come up with imaginative ways to delight and surprise and even entice that. I've seen, you know, in Italian hill towns, they're singing to each other across the narrow streets. Um, you know, they're creating artwork on, on walls, um, so, you know, I don't know how long you, you, you do that, but what I do with my three and a half year old daughter is we go out and we plant insurrectionary 
cherry trees and um, food forest guilds in marginal spaces. And we hang ribbons, we festoon stop signs with all these ribbons blowing in the wind. And um, we hang poetry from trees. And I'm teaching her, I'm, I'm not, not teaching her, cultivating in her the, the, um, the way, a way of seeing where she authorizes herself to immediately modify the world. And at some point, somebody's going to tell her she can't, and she'll be like, what are you talking about? Um, because she's growing up, you know, painting a street, taking up lawns, putting in gardens, and uh, she sees people around her doing it, so she's a new set of patterns. I think you can still do things like that. Um, I think it's a very good idea to authorize yourself to creatively, um, strategically break laws that you find offensive. You know, at best, these laws are community agreements. But if you realize that there's a stricture that's been put in place without the consent of the community at some point, I think it's your obligation, moral moral obligation, and you, actually your life may depend on it to um, stand up and, and, and change the conditions and challenge that law. We've done that so many times, um, and we're so strategic about it by leading with those benchmarks and saying, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And um, you know, then we use tools, like we make proposals, we, we create pictures and um, we show plans and stuff. So it's kind of hard to stop us because it's like, that's a beautiful picture, actually. You know? <laughs> I mean, the police literally said when we when we took the intersection illegally, they're like, this terrifyingly huge guy shows up, head, seven feet tall. And he said, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm paid to stop things which are bad, but I'm not paid to stop things which are good. And uh, that's a direct quote. So we were just not going to give up. And we had grandmothers involved and little kids. And we were all standing together. And we were modifying the environment because we were like, damn it, we're villagers. I refuse to not be a villager. For the sake of all my murdered ancestors and all of these like raped women that were stolen by empires and carried off and all the dead guys who were you know, fighting in the military and I don't know what your dreams are like, but my Neolithic dreams can sometimes be very violent and it shows me a lot about what happened. When I wake up, I'm not ready to submit. Uh, so a little bit of sense of ancestry. You know, if you're, if you're stuck at home, check out the internet or read a book about your ancestors and what was done to them and then see how you feel. Mm. Mm. You, I mean, a lot of people have been looking for some time to get some reading done anyway. So maybe to like look into your context. Yeah, and I find I, it very empowering. Go ahead. I, sorry, no, I, I was just uh, wanted to pick up on that that notion of of giving yourself permission to step up, speak up, act out, but in a way within that context of being a villager. You know, it's and and that I think is just such a powerful thing because, as you said, quite often, well, mostly we we've, we've been trained, conditioned to give away our power, to be a consumer of all things, our spaces, our towns, our homes, everything, that we, we've lost that, the, the, the imagination, the creativity, the, the agency. And so really it is, like you said, it's, it's, it's your next step and give yourself permission to do that and give yourself permission to connect with your neighbours to do that. And, and, and that's, that's, kind, that's kind of, it's simple advice, isn't it? I mean, if you... You know, you get caught up with all these other but this, but that, but that. But if you come back into that, you can change the world 
from the simple action of, of shifting how, how you're being in place and, and in community. And so just to sort of take that way back out, um, this in relation to what we're facing in the world right now from what, what people are, uh, how do people respond to this type of action as seeing it as something that they're doing to make a contribution to planetary repair because of, you know, the, the climate crisis and the ecological crisis? What, where do you, how do you describe that relationship so that people can actually see this is activism towards healing the planet? How do you just, I'm sorry, can you say that again? How, just a, describe- how would you describe that? Because sometimes, okay, the back to, story to that question is sometimes people say, well, that's not enough. You have to work at this big strategic legal level and be in government and making the policy changes. That's not enough. Like it's not about you and your neighbourhood. But I would argue that actually it is that. And I don't know, what's your perspective on that and how would you describe that to people if they were saying, you know, we need to do bigger things to actually make change and heal the planet and, and have a future. Yeah, great, great question. Well, I, I'm fortunate to have a lot of surplus energy, so I kind of have to be working on a lot of things at once so that I'm never stopped. Like I've just got plenty of avenues and channels for advancing things. And I, I do recommend that to people, um, especially to people who are just part of cultures of resistance. And I don't mean to say just. But, you know, if you're spending 100% of your energy fighting against, you know, if you do happen to win, what's your next move? Like, so I really, really um, think it's important for, for oneself to decide on the proportion of how much energy you will put into fighting against things versus, uh, or not versus, but along with the question of how much um, of your energy will you put into um building the alternative structure that inevitably would have to emerge in order to be a different world. And one of the things that's so delightful about permaculture is that you're directly manifesting change. You're not really fighting or negotiating it. You're, as soon as you go into collaborative practice with others, you're manifesting the social culture you want to inhabit, uh, albeit imperfectly because you're out of practice and you're, you know, you're, you're probably starting off a bit messy. Um, you know, but that's perfect. That's perfect because you're you're need, fundamentally needing to be learning. So that's all that's all good. Um, but you know, personally, I haven't really organized it into categories. But I do too too much consciously. But you know, I'm working politically, and I'm working in like I've managed to shift my livelihood into conscious, intentional impacts um, in order to feed my family and. Oh my God, this is so great. Like the benefits are stacked. The outcomes are just stacked. Uh, and as soon as people, re- I mean, you know, especially if you're living in a selfish myopic kind of culture, it's like if people could only realize that the benefits are immensely personal, like talk about self-improvement, talk about a quieter mind, talk about a healthier body, talk about better friends and relationships than you never could have paid for. Like, all of that will come to you if you just engage. You become more literate. You'll become more informed. You'll feel more powerful. You'll have more confidence. 
your mind will quiet because you'll be engaged. And stop asking what the meaning of life is because it will become self-evident. Um, all of that good stuff. You know, and inevitably, as you're doing that, you're coming into a leadership capacity if you stay with it long enough. And then you're going to be engaged politically. But I think I recommend that people be doing, just doing stuff that immediately, there's so many reasons for saying this, but that immediately build your own like aesthetic experience. Like how else, this is the question, how else will you replenish yourself if you're not doing that? If you're not having pleasurable experiences that remind you of why you're here or help you fall more deeply in love with the world. Like this is what, how it works for me. When I feel deeply in love with the world, then I'm filled with appreciation. And then you can't stop me. You can't put me to bed. I just, I can't stop. I, I can't. I mean, I'm not talking about being compulsive. I'm like being filled with joy and being propelled with enthusiasm. So like, that's what you can cultivate in yourself. And then you're ready for more than you even thought. You know, if you start off saying, oh, what's in my pocket? This is all the resource I have. I have $15. What can I do with that? No, you really got to start off with maximizing and building up your capacity for inspiration and feeling and then act from there and it will just build. And I'm not saying you won't have disappointments and heartbreaks. Um, you got to stick with it for those things. But um, yeah, it's uh, the, the benefits are immense and all, all of your edges, all your surface area is an opportunity for ways to engage. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for this just wonderful conversation today. I feel so nourished by having this conversation with you. And I, thank and I so know much. that when we, when we share this out, that, you know, people will have similar feels. I just feel like my, my, my smile is stretched up and hooked around my ears. <laughs> that's well, that's how. so lovely. Thank you. I'm, I've been enjoying looking at your site and some of the talks. It's just fantastic, the lineup of folks you brought together and the subjects that you have there for everyone to enjoy. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being the guest on the show today. It's it's just been an absolute delight to to not only to meet you and talk with you, but to to be in, to really be deeply inspired by the way in which you're helping to to cultivate the kind of change that needs to happen in the world today thank you thank you thank you so much have a beautiful time down there good luck to all of us yes (laughs) let's make it happen yeah absolutely all right take care stay safe you too you too bye-bye So thanks for tuning in to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to have your company. I invite you to subscribe and receive notification of each new weekly episode with more wonderful stories, ideas, inspiration and common sense for living and working regeneratively and call positive permaculture thinking and design into action in this changing world. I'm including a transcript below and a link also to my four-part permaculture series, really looking at what is permaculture and how to make it your livelihood too. So join me again in the next episode where we talk with another fascinating guest. I look forward to seeing you there.